0: Our Father, indeed, you have opened our eyes to see the great, great rich significance of the cross of Jesus Christ. It is not an ornament, it is not a, a necklace, it is an instrument of death, a death that was required by your righteous law, a death undeserved by him who experienced it, but a death. Suffered vicariously for people who did deserve it. This Jesus of which we sing is the one who lived the life that we should have lived and then died. Died the death that we should have died so that we might be set free to newness of life. It is that which took place on that cross which means life for us. Death for him, but life for us. And so we come to sing of the wonderful cross. It is not simply a symbol to us, it is far, far more. It is the place of the sufferings of our Savior, and we have come to worship him. Our Father, we do thank you for the kind providences of this past week. So many of us continue to live in, in just the, the greatest of peace and, and uh, enjoyment. But that's not true of all of us. There are people who are limping into this room this morning, who are carrying all kinds of loads, all kinds of burdens and sorrows. There are decisions to be made. There are, there are um, t- solutions to be found. There are issues that, are, that loom so large in the lives of some people here this morning that their only sound from their souls is one of a groan. And I pray that you will lift their burden today. Not because of a sermon that they will hear, but because of being reminded of an invisible kingdom where indeed eternity unfolds. And genuine and true life is to be had. Father, all that we experience here is just a warm-up. A warm-up for eternity. And I pray that you will ready us for that. And give us a better sense of readiness as a result of being together this hour. Might something be heard that has been authored in your throne room that comes to each of our hearts and makes us into people more like the Savior, and more ready to face what it is that we're facing. Now, Father, we come to a a point in our worship service where we get to participate very tangibly. This is our opportunity to, to, to make a statement that we are willing to sacrifice for the kingdom of God. Not only are we willing to sacrifice, but we make the sacrifices because we trust that our financial future is better off in your hands than it is in ours. And so thank you for the privilege. Thank you for this opportunity to give. Use every dime to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Read your Bibles, if you will, and you're going to need them in just a second. But uh, before I read you my text, um, I, I have some explaining to do. So let me do that real quick. On September the 7th and the 14th of this past year, a little over a month ago, uh, I made a big deal, um, and self-consciously made a big deal, of, of a text out of Romans chapter 7. It's verse 4, and I want to read it to you. This is not my text this morning, but it certainly has some pertinence. This is Romans 7, 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ. Here it is that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that you should bear fruit to God. Now that was really my text on um, September the seventh and the fourteenth, and I tried to point out that the one of the themes of the scriptures is that that God has created this people to whom he describes himself as being married. That the, that the metaphor that is most frequently used is that of bride and bridegroom. He chooses to, to suggest that his relationship is not so much a master to a slave or even a shepherd to a sheep, even though those are used. But he chooses to use this metaphor to underscore that his relationship is of the deepest intimacy with his people. This is something that is woven from Old Testament to New Testament. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, the Bible opens and closes with a wedding ceremony. Um, In the book of Genesis, chapter 2, after all of this creative fiat, uh, it culminates in a wedding. And Then you go to the end of the Bible and there you find this wedding that's taking place as the book closes. Because the relationship that is that most accurately and best depicts... God's relationship to his people is the relationship of a bride and a bridegroom. And that is what is mentioned in Romans 7, 4. You are married to another. Of course, Christ is the husband and we are his bride. And that's what I did on the 7th and the 14th of September. Then I followed that with... September's 21st and 28th with a call to uh, grace Evan, to a to faithful sacrificial kingdom living something that we're calling uh, the grace venture around here at grace Van. it's a it's a call to grace ivan to a, to a life of faith and a focus on the great commission and by the way, if you did not hear those four sermons, I, I really want to recommend that you get them and listen to them. Uh, not because they're so wonderful and, and you need to hear how wonderful my preaching is. But it really does represent, for Gracie Van, our vision. And uh, you'll hear that again in a year or so, or in 12 months or so. But if, if you've not heard those sermons, you're going to be pretty much out of the loop for 12 months and so that I'd like to see us all in the same loop, all on the same page, I really want to recommend that you get those things and listen to them. Um, Now, the reason I, I started back in September the 7th and the 14th with those two sermons about being married to Christ and then followed it with a call to faithful living is because it was important to me, and I think it's important to God, for you to know that you are eternally safe. That in your relationship to Jesus Christ, you cannot be lost. And that whatever response that you are going to make to this grace venture call, that it would spring not from a a sense of oughtness, but from a sense of the enjoyment of relationship. I wanted you to respond not out of duty, although duty is not a bad word, ladies and gentlemen, in the Christian church. I didn't want you to respond out of duty. I wanted you to respond out of the joy of relationship. I'll tell you just a quick story that illustrates, I think, my point. Many of you know that Susie and I just spent a week away on the beach in Florida, and... and, um, uh, to do that, of course, we have to board our dog. We have a dog, much to my chagrin, that we have to board. And uh, so we put that dog in this puppy farm um, out in bi Mississippi. It's a ways away, but uh, my wife, uh, through some friends, researched and found the best place for our beloved dog. So um, uh, we left Sunday morning, and my daughter, my 23-year-old daughter, uh, was given the responsibility of dropping the dog off at the puppy farm. Well, she did, and she did it very ably. I, I'm proud to suggest, to announce. But um, on uh, on the way out there, I mean, a friend went with her to drop this dog off at Bayle, Mississippi, at the puppy farm. So they came back, and at the later on in the day, this friend asked my daughter Emily for a favor, and Emily was somewhat hesitating in her response to this request. And her friend said, now, Emily, you know that I rode all the way out to Bialia, Mississippi with you today. My point in that, or telling you that story, ladies and gentlemen, is that's how most relationships operate. I did this for you, therefore you need to do this for me. And I would go so far as to suggest that most of us in our relationship with Jesus Christ operate like that. Oh, He did this for me. Okay. I better do, I better go to church because you know He did this for me. Now, and I'm not saying that's all bad, ladies and gentlemen, but I am saying that my call to you in September is not a call for you to respond out of the guilt of duty. Or oughtness. My hope is that whatever response you make will come out of a sense of joy in relationship. Now, this morning, I want to um, I want to close I want to I want to close the parenthesis. I started off in September. By talking to you about being married to another. In between, I've made this call to the Grace Venture. Now what I want to do is give you the other bookend. I want to close the parenthesis. Because I want to take you back to this issue of being married to another. I want to I start like that. And I want to close like that. I want to close with another reminder that you are married to another. That is, we are the bride and Jesus Christ is our heavenly bridegroom. You may remember, maybe I'm flattering myself here, but you may remember that... um, um, I, on the, on the September the 14th, I gave you um, um, all of these texts, these passages where um, um, that marriage to Jesus was mentioned. Perhaps you might recall, one was in Ruth, another was in Isaiah. I spent most of our time in Hosea. And then we closed in the book of Revelation. All of these mentions throughout the Bible, ladies and gentlemen. Um, And I can go on forever. For instance, when God's people sin against him, what does he call it? He calls it infidelity. And then turns to us and calls us adulterers. Do you you see the point? The point is, this book has woven into its warp and its woof this, this theme, this idea that we are in a relationship of the deepest intimacy with the God who made us and redeemed us in Christ Jesus. So I showed you those few texts, but they're numerous in here. This morning I want to show you one more. And I want you to know it's a rather odd one. <laughs> so now, having heard all that by way of preface, if you've got your Bibles, open them to Numbers chapter 5. Numbers 5. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Fourth book. I want you to read with me or follow as I read. Beginning at verse 11 of Numbers chapter 5. Here we go. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully toward him him, and a man lies with her carnally and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband and it is concealed that she has defiled herself and there was no witness against her nor was she caught. If the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife, who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. He shall bring the offering required for her one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it because it is a grain offering of jealousy, an offering for remembering, for bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. The priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel And take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. Then the priest shall stand the woman before the Lord, uncover the woman's head, and put the offering for remembering in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse. And the priest shall put her under oath and say to the woman, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not gone astray to uncleanness while under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. But if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has lain with you, Then the priest shall put the woman under the oath of the curse. And he shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people, when the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell. Whoever said that the Bible was boring? Keep reading. And may this water that causes the curse go into your stomach, And make your belly swell and your thigh rot. Then the woman shall say, Amen. So be it. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book. And he shall scrape them off into the bitter water. And he shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse. And the water that brings the curse shall enter her to become bitter. Then the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand shall wave the offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the offering as its memorial portion, burn it on the altar, and afterward make the woman drink the water. When he has made her drink the water, then it shall be, if she has defiled herself and behaved unfaithfully toward her husband, that the water that brings a curse will enter her and become bitter. And her belly will swell, her thigh will rot, and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and may conceive children. This is the law of jealousy. When a wife, while under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself. Or when the spirit of jealousy comes upon a man and he becomes jealous of his wife, then he shall stand the woman before the Lord and the priest shall execute all this law upon her. Then the man shall be free from iniquity, but that woman shall bear her guilt. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God... It endures forever. You know, ladies and gentlemen, it saddens me to think that there are women who are in this room right now who are breathing a secret sigh of relief that this law of jealousy no longer exists, that this, this odd potion, the, the, the water that reveals the truth, is no longer available breathe deeply my sisters in Christ there's no preacher there's no priest who will ever ask you to drink that cocktail of remembrance again at a purely human level ladies and gentlemen this text is downright scary what if there were some kind of method available to us today that that could somehow prove a, a spouse's fidelity or lack of fidelity? How many of us would pass that test? How many of us would fail it? If nothing else, ladies and gentlemen, this text underscores the incredible imperative... Of fidelity in marriage. In the New Testament, very interestingly, there was a Jewish writer who was writing to Jews. And it was this Jewish writer with this in his background who wrote in Hebrews chapter 13 that the marriage bed is to be sacred and undefiled. Our culture scoffs. They scoff at marriage, number one. Not to mention infidelity. They excuse infidelity. We even elect a a known womanizer as a governor. And we tolerate such goings on in our Oval Office. But this story in Numbers chapter 5 warns us as to how seriously the Bible takes marriage vows. And how how repugnant is this sin in heaven. Now, another thing that this text does, again, at the purely human level, is that it endorses jealousy in marriage. What? How? Well, let let me show you how. If you read that passage again, you will notice, I'm sure, that the husband is never reprimanded, never once rebuked. For his jealousy, well, let me tell you a story. I, um, I think I've told this before, but when I do premarital counseling, I, I did a wedding yesterday. But uh, in the premarital counseling, uh, the couple comes in. They, they have a qualifying session, and then they have the second session. In the in the second session, I always begin with this question. Here's how I begin premarital counseling. I look at this young couple who is all you know skittery. And um, they say, I ask, do you think that jealousy is ever legitimate in marriage? And at that point, they are impaled on the horns of a dilemma. Because most of them, not all of them, but most of them know that 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the chapter on love, teaches that love is not jealous. But they know every time that they see their girlfriend, or their fiance, you know, flirting with another, nor mm, there's me. They're just, they're just jealous. So there they sit and I'm saying, do you think that jealousy is ever legitimate in marriage? And they don't know how to answer me. Well, you know, I first went to answer, oh, yeah, I, you know, I, there they are caught in a quandary. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that conundrum is easily solved. Like this. First of all, 1 Corinthians 13 is not written to couples. It's written to the church. 1 Corinthians 13 does not describe the love that is supposed to exist between a husband and a wife. It describes the love that is supposed to exist among us. The church. That love, ladies and gentlemen, is not, is not jealous 1 Corinthians, by the way, I would never use 1 Corinthians 13 in a wedding. Because it's not written to a man and a wife. A man and his wife. It's written to a church. But secondly, any, the, solving the conundrum, secondly, any relationship that is designed to be exclusive, like marriage, jealousy is not only permitted it is demanded. Another relationship like that? How about my relationship to God? You do know, don't you, that Exodus chapter 34 describes God as jealous. Does that embarrass anyone? Is God some kind of substandard deity? Because he is jealous of his people? No, ladies and gentlemen, time a relationship that is design, a relationship is designed to be exclusive. Jealousy is not only permitted, it is demanded. Um, I, I often say this, and maybe you've heard me say this too, but I often say, you show me a man who can find his wife in the arms of another man and not get jealous, and I'll show you a man that doesn't love his wife. Because in a relationship that is designed to be exclusive, jealousy is legitimate. Now, having said all that, let me hasten to add, I don't think that this passage is about human marriages. I don't think that our understanding of what we read in Numbers chapter 5 should stop by us thinking about our marriages. Because, ladies and gentlemen, this passage is far more profound than that. And I think I can prove it. With one observation. Here it is. Did you notice that as I read this text, that the faithfulness of the husband was never questioned? Only the wife's faithfulness, never the husband's. You know, I have, have you ever heard this adage about no board is ever so thin that it only has one side? Well, gang, trust me, when you do as much marital counseling as I do, you know that if you've heard one side, you haven't heard it all. In a human marriage, ladies and gentlemen, there is always the uh, the, the necessity to to examine both The husband's story and the wife's story. But in this uh, story here in Numbers 5, ladies and gentlemen, the husband's fidelity is never questioned. Now, don't mishear me. I'm not suggesting that a husband is more faithful than a wife. Or am I suggesting that a wife is ever more faithful than her husband? I'm saying that in a human marriage... It's always a possibility that a husband could be just as unfaithful as any wife. But that is never brought into question here in Numbers chapter 5. Gang, is this text suggesting that there were no unfaithful husbands in Israel? Poppycock. Gang, there, you, you don't see any water in this text That's mixed with the dust from the dirt of the the tabernacle for the husband to drink. Why not? Because I'm suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, that this text is really not about human marriage. It is pointing us towards something far more profound. Because, my friends, there is only one husband... Whose faithfulness is unquestionable. And he's mentioned in Romans chapter seven. There there is only one husband whose devotion to his bride is impeccable. There is only one husband whose fidelity never need be questioned. And I am married to him. And his name is Jesus Christ. And his faithfulness, his faithfulness to his bride is the point of this story. No. No, his faithfulness is unquestioned. It's it's not questioned. It doesn't need be. Because there's only one faithful husband. And his name is Jesus Christ. Now, with that glimpse, I want us to go back to the story. And I want to, in essence, read it again. I'm not going to read it, but I want you to look at it again. And I want you to hear it with this in mind. That it is pointing us to Jesus Christ, the husband... And the bride here is us. We're the bride whose fidelity is under scrutiny. Let me make five observations and I'm I'm finished. First of all, I've already made this, but let me repeat it. The fidelity of this husband is unquestioned. It need never be brought into doubt. It is proven. He is never examined as to whether or not he's been faithful to his wife because the assumption is he is faithful to his wife. That's the first observation. Here's the second one. Whereas faithfulness to this husband is expected... It is not always gotten. Oh, the heartbreak of an unfaithful bride. The pain of unrequited love. And the bride that is in view here in Numbers chapter 5. Gang, some of you have experienced this at a purely human level. You've had to watch, literally in some cases, you've had to watch as your spouse heads off to, to other lovers. Tell me, what emotions did you experience? Think with me about the parable of the prodigal son. What emotions do you think that father experienced as he watched his son exchange his love, that is the the love of the father, for the love of the foreign country? What emotions do you think that father experienced? To expect faithfulness, and not only that, to deserve it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm a husband and I don't deserve faithfulness. But there is a husband that does deserve it. Not only does he expect it, he deserves it. And and and, And then to not get it? To a husband that expects it and deserves it and then doesn't get it? What kind of grief? Must the unfaithfulness of this bride cause our faithful husband? Here's the third observation. I want you to look at verse 28. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and may conceive children. Here's my third observation, ladies and gentlemen. When the bride is innocent, she's free, and she goes on to bear children. By the way, that language, bearing children, is language that you will also find in Romans chapter 7, verse 4. When the bride is innocent, when when she has been faithful to her heavenly bridegroom, the bride is free. And she goes on to bear fruit for his joy. Bearing fruit, ladies and gentlemen, is what the bride is supposed to do. Being free to, to give honor and bring glory to my husband is my design. That's what I'm intended to do. And when the bride is faithful to her husband... She lives a life that experiences exhilaration and and productivity. But here's my fourth observation. When the wife... Let me just read it. Look at verse 12. If any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully toward him... So you see... When she is faithful, she is free and bears children. But when she is unfaithful, oh my. Oh my. The picture is downright horrific. Let me read it to you again. Verse 22. And may this water that causes the curse go into your stomach and make your belly swell and your thigh rot. When she is faithful, she's free and she bears children. When she is unfaithful. You know, I I don't need to add anything to that picture, ladies and gentlemen. Her belly swells and her thigh rots. I can simply say this. When when this bride is guilty of behaving unfaithfully, she is ruined. She is unappealing in every way. She is maimed. And it was all brought on by her unfaithful living. Oh, my friends of the disaster... The foolishness of unfaithful living. And how well so many of us know it. You know, gang, one thing that you must know about sin is that it's irrational. It renders you irrational. Did you see what verse 22, how it ends? And she says, Amen, so be it. There she stands, and the priest is handing her a glass of water. And uh, he says, "Now listen, this is the, the this curse stuff. And if you drink it, and you've been guilty, you've been guilty. Your belly's gonna swell, and your thighs gonna rock." And she says, "Amen. So be it." She's insane. She is standing before God and inviting judgment down on her own head, and she's saying, "Bring it on." That's what sin does to you. It makes you crazy. It renders you absolutely irrational. So much so that we will gladly exchange health, freedom, and fruit bearing for a swollen belly and a rotted thigh. You know, I could almost, I I could almost um, understand if my wife were to do something like that. Not to this husband. Not to him. Ladies and gentlemen, we are a people who are familiar with the with the winsomeness of a faithful husband. And yet we are still willing to forfeit health and fruit bearing for swollen bellies and rotted thighs. Now, one more, and I'm finished. What could possibly, possibly be good about this story? One thing. Though the bride is mauled and unappealing and unfaithful, she is guilt personified. Did you notice what doesn't happen? Did you notice that, as I read that, that we are never told here That the husband ever dumps her. Although that's what she might deserve. The husband never throws her overboard. Although her sin has caused her to become, as verse 27 says, a curse among her people. She is never cut off. She is never stoned. She is not forsaken. She is still married. In the face of all of her failing, the husband never walks away from her. Guilty? You bet. Bruised, scarred? Oh, yeah. Some beauty forfeited? Mm hmm. But abandoned? No. You see, there is only one husband who responds to the unfaithfulnesses of his bride like this. There is only one husband who knows of his bride's sordid behavior and doesn't sue for divorce. And his name is Jesus Christ. And I am married to him. Are you? Are you? We sing a song here, and there's a line in it, and Jimmy could tell me which one it is, but there is this line in this song that says, Oh, love that wilt not let me go. That is descriptive of only one husband, ladies and gentlemen. And I'm married to him. I'm safe because I've, because I've been good. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not safe because I was good. I'm safe because he is faithful. I am not safe because I am faithful. I am safe because He is faithful. I am not safe because I am good. I am safe because He is good. I am safe everlastingly because I am married to a husband who is altogether faithful. Excited about your marriage? You bet I am. Who wouldn't be? Ladies and gentlemen, whatever response you make to any call to do anything on any occasion, make your response in view in view of love that will not let you go. Let's pray. Our Father, I do pray that you will work in the hearts of your people a a determination to respond in a way that will reflect their being overcome by love. That they are not overcome by guilt or duty or, or oughtness, but they are overcome by a husband who knows all of our guilt and shame, but refuses to abandon us. A husband who has made us safe, not on the basis of what we have done, but on the basis of what He has already done on the cross of Calvary. That His work there has made it possible for those with swollen bellies and rotted thighs to enjoy an everlasting marriage to a husband who is altogether lovely. His bride isn't, but He is. And we celebrate His faithfulness to us today. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.